Obviously, over the last week, we have been um, praying into this bill um, in New South Wales Parliament around abortion, or as they call it, reproductive health, which is more like the Reproductive Death Act, if we were to call it for what it is. Um, and it has been stirring over in my heart prayerfully, and not only the issue, but how did we actually get here? And what is Jesus' commission to us as the church and where have we missed that such that we got to this point? And that's been stirring over in my heart and my mind a lot. And um, we've been doing stuff around the heart journey. We've talked about covenant and I'm like, but I don't want to divert too much from that, especially given we've got a whole lot of people um, doing Elijah House. And all of a sudden, this thing kind of came together um, around discipling nations, shaping culture and the heart journey kind of all boom. All together in one. That's what you're about to get. You ready? Okay, so if you have a Bible, let's crack open to Matthew chapter 28. And this is going to be a very familiar text, and then I'm going to jump back to Matthew 13 in a little while, um, in not too long from now. Um, and very shortly, I'm going to need seven volunteers. I promise you, you will not be hum uh, humiliated, embarrassed, covered in goop, anything like that. I just, I need to visually illustrate something very shortly, and it's not a trick. So if I ask for seven volunteers, you are as safe as anyone could ever be with me. That was not well said. Let me try that again. <laughs> you will be safe, let's just say. Okay, so Matthew chapter eight, Matthew chapter 28. Um, verses 18 to 20. This is a very familiar passage known as the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Anyone never heard that scripture before, ever? Didn't think so. Okay. We were given, as Jesus left the earth, he gave us a commission. And he said, go and make disciples of all nations. In our church mindset, we have kind of thought, well, as long as there are disciples in nations, where go and make disciples in all nations. But it doesn't actually say go and make disciples in all nations. It says make disciples of all nations. I've said this a number of times before, I'm sure. Um, but just in case, the word there is of, not in. And there is a big difference between in and of, not just in the way it sounds. Okay, has anyone got a sense of humor in here? Or is there just funny stuff going on in my head? Or are you just deeply concentrating? I'm just seeing if you're alive. <laughs> Where was the joke, says Cameron? Thank you. At least someone gave me something. In, of. They don't sound the same. They are very different in concept. In, making disciples in nations mean if we've got a little house church somewhere in Iraq, that fits. But making disciples of all nations, making disciples of the nation, making disciple of the nation of Iraq is a very different motif. Does that make sense? Very big difference between in and of. Not just its spelling, not just its sound. Probably should have said that first. Anyway. Now, it says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an interesting little thing here because, I mean, I've done hundreds and hundreds of baptisms over the last 25 years, and every time I said, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone's like, whoa, you know, because that's what we do. Interesting thing, though, 
And I don't have a problem with that, by the way, because I do it too. I don't have a problem with that, but it's interesting when you follow baptisms through the book of Acts, at no point do they use that formula, if you like. At no point does it say they were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does it say? Any thoughts? When it came to baptism in water, as in, it just says they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. That's all it says. Interesting that that formula that Jesus said was never used by the early church. So is it possible that what we think Jesus had in mind when he said that wasn't what he had in mind? Now, I have no problem with baptism. And if you haven't been baptized and you're a Christian, let me encourage that wholeheartedly. Our pool will get warm soon and we're going to be cranking that thing up again. And um, that is a good thing. But is it possible that when he was saying that, he wasn't talking about dunking all of these nations under a whole lot of water and having a big celebration, as cool as that would be? Is it possible that the commission to make disciples of all nations was the what? Sorry. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the the Holy Spirit was the what? Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you is the how. In other words, at this point, so the word baptize means to be immersed. They need to be immersed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then it says, as part of the same sentence, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. It's a bit like saying, go and fix the car, the what, by putting oil in the whatever. I don't know, I'm not a mechanic. It's it's really, really clear. (laughs) You know what I mean? Now, one's the what, another's the how. That he actually, Jesus actually gave us a blueprint for what discipling nations look like. And it was actually a sustained pattern of teaching a nation what Jesus has commanded. Now, the way that we tend to go about that, though, is in a really churchy way. We will open up the scriptures and we will say, this is what Jesus said, therefore this is what you will do. Only problem is, there's a whole lot of people out there that don't ascribe authority to scripture like we do. And therefore, the moment we use that as our basis, good basis, by the way, just in case you're wondering, the moment we use that as the basis, people tend to switch off. Now, before I dive into what that may look like, We have this commission to disciple nations. I don't know if any of you find that a little daunting or a little large in scope. I do. But in the before that commission was all authority, Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the top of it. And the tail of it is, and I am with you always until the end of the age. So we're surrounded by the authority of Jesus and his presence with us at all times surrounding that commission. That's got to help a little, yeah? When I say a little, I mean a fair bit. Like a lot, yes. Okay. It probably makes it central. That's actually a really good point. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So what I want to suggest is that the method of discipling nations is a sustained pattern of teaching and shaping a culture through teaching. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think we can take some lessons from 
really everybody else in the world that has an agenda and learn some things. And this is where I need seven volunteers. Seven. I, specifically, I need seven. Thank you. One, two. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yeah, you're, yeah. How about one, two, three, four, five, six. Come on, just one more. Thanks, Hannah. Love your work. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. Oh, that's where it goes. You, you, you won't see this bit in there. I'm completely winging it now. All right. That's right. You can't read my writing anyway. That's where I should have been a doctor. Just hold it up so everybody can see. You got the most colourful, creative one, Megan. That's entirely... Okay, hold them up so everybody can see. If anyone needs binoculars, have a, have a look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they're a long way away. Does anyone recognise what these are? Oh, there's one in every crowd. Cameron says they're pieces of paper. What is... <laughs> they are the, I'm just going to let that through to the kids. They are the seven mountains of culture. We've talked about these a number of times. We have business... Business is the realm of commerce, where we buy and sell things, where people make profit, all of that stuff. Government is the area of, um, obviously, governments govern, but it's also the area of judiciary. It's where laws are made. Education includes not only our schools and universities, but the academics that sit behind them. And they're actually really, really important. Media. Obviously, media is what we hear on the TV, the radio, the newspapers. The thing with media is that they always report events through a worldview. And if you don't discern the worldview through which the message is coming, you are going to get sucked into a culture that is not kingdom. That is a really, really... I could almost stop right there, um, but I won't, as you would probably know. Arts and entertainment is often called the Sabbath mountain. So it includes sports, but it includes movies. It includes works of art. It includes creativity. Um, but it's often called the Sabbath mountain because it's what we go to when we rest and have fun. It's incredibly powerful. Why is Hollywood manifesting over um, stricter abortion laws in the state of Georgia, for example, because the mountain of arts and entertainment wants to have power and those at the top of it want to actually rule and dominate and disciple culture. Interestingly, when Saddam Hussein's palace was finally captured, one of the things they found in there was a bunch of Hollywood movies, particularly The Godfather, I think, which you can understand why Saddam Hussein would have liked that. Um, but Hollywood got places where the gospel never did, right into the heart of Saddam's palace. Family, obviously family. And one of the things that the enemy's agenda is to do is to completely disintegrate the family unit so that education and government can start to run your life. And if we don't see that, we are going to get sucked in. Spirituality. Obviously, Hannah, the most spiritual person in the room, is here. Now, notice how I... <laughs> it's supposed to be a compliment. Um, notice how I didn't put church there. Because I don't know if you remember some months ago when I drew all of this up on the screen, the church, as in the ecclesia, is actually meant to sit underneath all of this and to infiltrate all of this. And I don't know if you're aware, but... As the church, we don't even own the mountain of spirituality. The, the, the other forces that have shaped the culture of the world have marginalized Christianity even in this mountain. And now if you make any claim about Jesus, they say, yeah, well, Buddha and Muhammad. And it's, it's cool to be anything except Christian. 
So we don't even know, own the mountain of spirituality. We've got to understand that. Now, let me use the current laws in New South Wales as a bit of an idea of how stuff happens in the long term. In other words, we didn't just arrive at a point with one of the world's worst bills before New South Wales Parliament. It didn't just kind of happen. This was the result of a huge amount of work. If you're going to make anything happen in terms of it being enacted in law, laws are a reflection of the heart of the people. Therefore, you have to shape a culture. You have to shape the hearts of the people. Am I making sense? So far, yes. You have to shape the hearts of the people. You have to infiltrate their minds. And one of the best ways to do that is through this particular sector here, this mountain here called education. Now, don't just think of schools, although they are a key voice for that mountain. When someone wants to influence policy, they get somebody in the academic mountain to go and do some kind of scientifically-based study which they then publish using the media mountain and say, I mean, we read in the news all the time, new study shows that fatherlessness is clearly not a problem in our society or something like that, which is clearly not true. Um, but you, you get the idea. The education mountain, they get academics in the education mountain who have that worldview that, do, that produce research that suits their agenda, and then they produce this to the media and start to tell the masses this is the truth. And over a period of time, if they do that enough, they start to get in the ear of government. And they start to get petitions going up. Um, I don't know if you noticed this this week. There was a petition put up by, I think it was by Fred Nile on change.org against this abortion bill. And on the top, of the, there was a banner on the top of this particular petition that says, information contained herein may be incorrect or misleading. Because change.org is a very ultra-left-wing dominated thing that is intended to lobby government towards that agenda. And any agenda that goes against that they're going to put something up there. Um, where does science... Okay, science fits in two places. It fits in education because it's to do with the research, but then when it comes to um, commercialising science, it fits into business. And so it depends on whether it's the research to change policy or it's innovative kind of research, and that's where education and business kind of join together. And interestingly... This is not the point of the message, but seeing you asked, thank you. Um, in Australia, we have a way higher than average number of patents and like you know, um, creative innovations or inventions. That's the word I'm looking for. We have more than an average number of inventions, but we have a way below average um, percentage of actually getting those inventions commercialised. In other words, there is a, a breakdown between here and here, between education and, gov and business that is seeing in Australia our creativity dampened? That's a good question. I don't, if I had an answer to that, I would have fixed it by now. But I will keep, I, I will keep brewing around that one. There's actually a war on between um, science and Ecclesia sitting at the bottom of the mountain. Yes, there is very much. In case you know, there is a war of, between science and Ecclesia sitting in that mountain. Because you've got different worldviews that are trying to dominate that mountain. 
And whoever dominates that mountain gets to use the media mouthpiece to get their agenda out there to ultimately impact government, which means then their agenda gets legislated. Which one? Which, uh, which one? So, okay. Are they one mountain? Are they all seven? Are they a mountain range? <laughs> you can't sit down just yet because there's a point I need to make. <laughs> there, there is, yeah, mountains cannot sit down. They must rise above the... Um, so this came from originally... Um, a revelation that God gave to Bill Bright and to Lauren Cunningham. So Bill Bright was the director of Campus Crusade for Christ, Lauren ha- Cunningham, the director of YWAM. They got this revelation separately, and these two had been leading major worldwide youth discipleship movements for 20, 30 years, but these two had never met. Even though they knew of each other and spoke fondly of each other, they'd never actually met in person. So when they finally came to meet, both of them separately said to God, well, I'm meeting this amazing person. Have you got anything for me to give to them? As in terms of any kind of revelation, any kind of a word, any kind of encouragement. And um, both of them actually came up with this. One called Seven Mountains, one, the other called it Seven World Kingdoms. And one of them had written it down on a piece of paper, another one had scribbled it on a serviette. And one of them, and I can't remember which one, said, hey, the Lord gave me this. And the other one pulled out the serviette and said, that looks a lot like this. And both of them went, oh my goodness, that is like really trippy. In other words, if you want to capture the end time harvest, you need to capture these realms of society because these are the realms in society that mind the molds of the people, of the masses. Mold the minds. Thank you. It has just occurred to me by a spirit of revelation that I've had no caffeine whatsoever today. And that explains why my brain did that. It, I'm going to get it wrong again. It moulds the minds of the masses. Don't go. <laughs> All right. So when it came to this debate on abortion, it starts with a bunch of researchers putting together research and sounding really scientific about when life begins and what is conscious and what is not. And they start to build an argument and they start to build a case. This started a long, 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 long time ago. So one of the things I'm going to be saying, I won't say it just yet, but one of the things I'm going to be saying is the word sustained in terms of the pattern of education is where we typically really fail. The marriage equality debate, I know I said I wasn't going to say it yet, so I'm not saying it yet, but the marriage equality debate was a culmination of 30 years. It started more than 30 years ago and they stuck at it and they stuck at it because they knew it would take 30 years to shift the masses toward that. And we usually don't have the patience to outlast a week if something doesn't happen. (laughs) Okay. So they start by getting education. The, The academic mountain to start to produce papers, research that start to undermine the traditional way of thinking. When enough of that happens, the media mountain gets involved. But you would have to have a media that is willing to publish that kind of stuff and to produce that kind of worldview. Sorry to keep you up. (laughs) (laughs) And when that happens enough, as we say... Government gets, they start to protest, they start to do petitions, they start to lobby government. You have people with that agenda that start running for office. 
and eventually you create a critical mass. Who funds the whole thing? This one. Business funds the whole thing. That's where you start to see what it takes to shape a culture over a sustained period of time. And then, as I said, if they can work to break down the family unit, then government and education will run your life, which is ultimately the end game of that philosophical worldview. You're getting the idea of how this works. So this didn't get there. Where we got to this week did not get there. Just, it wasn't just a random guy that said, oh, I'm going to put a private member's bill forward that took everyone by surprise. Yes, there was some strategy involved, but this was a sustained pattern of stuff that's been attempted and attempted and attempted and attempted. They've tried this many times before. It's never got up before. Yeah, 40 years. Yeah, it's about 40 years. Yeah, it's about right. It's been tried. Now, a little interesting thing, and then I will come back and I'll let you guys sit down in just a moment. Maybe. When you see legislation appear, it's the end of the line of a long, long fight. And I want to suggest, as a culture that has been given a commission to disciple nations through a sustained pattern of teaching, that we're not strategic enough and we're not sustained enough. We haven't understood how this works, and people with a different agenda have. We have escaped to this mountain over here to do our good churchy spiritual thing, and the void that has been left has been filled by people with a different agenda. So back in the 60s, I think it was, um, it was the common view of the church that if, you, if Jesus came back and you were in a movie theater, you wouldn't be taken up in the rapture. Yeah. Yeah, and don't wear makeup either, if you, especially. And, um, and so what happens is Christians in droves escaped and exited the arts and entertainment industry. There was nobody in there. The void gets filled up by people with a different agenda, and very, there is a small group of Jewish business people who don't even get on the rich list because they've got way more money than that, but they're very covert, that fund the entire agenda for Hollywood. So when Mel Gibson did The Passion of the Christ and went to this group for funding, they said, we're uncomfortable with the level of violence in this movie. Think about that for a second. And they said, no. Now, if Mel Gibson wasn't already at the top of this mountain and ridiculously rich, he couldn't have funded it himself, which he did. He funded that whole thing himself and it ended up being, in that time, the highest grossing movie ever in the history of the world. Poo-hoo on that industry who didn't do that. Kind of failed. Um, right now, there's a movie that was made called Unplanned that is about this, this abortion issue. And government in the US, I'm not sure what's happened out here. Um, someone else may know the answer to that. But they put an R rating on it because they know... <laughs> yeah, they put an R rating on it. So here's the deal. They had passed legislation to say that a girl as young as 12, 13, 14 could have an abortion without parental, parental permission. But you couldn't watch a movie about the act that you can go through until you're 18. Because they know that the Christians don't go to R-rated movies. 
And so if we make it R-rating, then no one will ever see it. So you can be as creative as you like. See what happens when you, when you own this? They get really strategic about which voices they actually allow through. But now we have a bunch of Christians who are rising up in that industry and understanding that there is a mandate um, to disciple culture through the medium of arts and entertainment. Are we making sense? Was that a yes so that I can sit down? <laughs> All right. Pop your, pop, pop your mountains on the floor and you, yes, you can sit down. <laughs> Give them a hand. They've been extraordinarily helpful. What I'm trying to say is there are forces that are doing this already and the problem is it's not us. And they are discipling nations into captivity using the very revelation that God gave to the church in terms of how to disciple culture into freedom and wholeness. Getting the idea? Okay. So within this sustained pattern of teaching, there's a couple of things I want to suggest on a really pragmatic front, and then I'm going to come to Matthew 13, and then I'm going to find a way to land this. One of the things as the church I think we need to learn to do better is how to debate and educate. And I'm going to make a slightly controversial suggestion about that without using scripture to do it. Why am I saying that? I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that in here. In here, we should be doing that to the hilt. We should be getting out Psalm 139 and going, well, the word of God says that before I was formed in the womb, he knew me and he knit me together in my mother's womb. So if I cut that thing short, I am working against what God is doing in that moment. We should be having those kinds of discussions among us. But one of the typical failures of the church is we use a debating tactic called an argument from authority. And the argument from authority basically says, well, this higher authority says it, therefore. The only problem with that, if someone you're debating with doesn't subscribe to that same authority, you've lost the argument. So we need to get smarter. See, those with a godless agenda have been infiltrating this mountain, education, for 20, 30, 40 years. Well, we've been having our revival meetings, which for the record, I'm a huge fan of, if you know me. Well, we've been having our revival meetings and praying for revival. People with a different agenda have been infiltrating the education mountain. Knowing that, they can get into the heads of our kids. They can get into the heads of our university students. And they have got a culture for 30, 40, 50 years. So right now in the US, 47% of university professors are self-proclaimed Marxists. Now, that's, an, that's another discussion in terms of Marxism, socialism. That's another discussion for another time. But people with that worldview have intentionally, over a long period of time, infiltrated that mountain. And now they have people elected to Congress in the US. The Labor government that was recently defeated um, was the most socialist-leaning government we have ever seen in the history of Australia. All I'm saying by that, whichever way you lean... There is stuff going on behind the scenes where people are intentionally using this mountain in order to shape culture in ways that are not kingdom. So we need to learn, A, we need to be releasing people into this mountain of education and seeing it as a long-term kingdom call from God to be a university professor, to be an academic. 
Because as soon as someone has PhD after their name, they have authority in the eyes of the world. The problem is there's a lot more people with the letters PhD after their name who have a different agenda. And so we tend to lose the battle there before it's even got to legislation. And that's part of the problem. Now, when it comes to the debate around abortion, one of the things we need to start to understand is in any of these issues, there's usually a small number of arguments that have been used. I think I said this last week. I can bring it down to five when it comes to the abortion debate. When the whole thing comes down, there's, as far as I can see it, five basic arguments that they will use. Number one is... It's a woman's body. They should be able to do what they want with it. Can you answer that? I mean, I, I agree they should be able to do what they want with their body, but if it's got a separate brain, separate DNA, separate blood type, separate heartbeat, that's not her body. That's someone else. That's a someone else. And laws are put in place to protect the someone else when my freedom in some way damages them. That, that's argument number one, um, is it's a woman's body. Um, they can do what they like. Argument number two, which fits that, is it's not actually a person yet. So it doesn't matter. So the question is, can we answer that? I mean, we can. I know we can in the room. But in terms of a debate that is of enough of a standard that we can actually answer that um, from an educated, intelligent perspective such that it's influential in people's thinking such that it provokes people to think, hang on a second, maybe I've been sold apart. Essentially. It's say, well, it's not a person, therefore you can do what you like to it. That's right. It doesn't matter. And ultimately, yes, when you take it to its end, you end up there for sure. And, which is another tactic. I'll get to that in a second. Um, Another, so it's a woman's body, it's not a person, therefore I can do what I like. Um, there's the argument from extreme, which is, yeah, but what about, and then they'll paint the most extreme possible scenario and say, what about that? So, okay. In all of this, the last thing I want to sound is uncompassionate, because anyone knows me, you know that that's the last thing <laughs> that, that would be true of me. Um, and so they will say, okay, well, what about rape? I know a really clever debater in the US that whenever he's presented with that, he always said, is she disabled as well? Just let me get the argument clear. Because what they're trying to do is paint the most extreme possible case and say, okay, someone has been brutally assaulted, has ended up pregnant as a result. What are you going to do there? And this is when I said last week, that is less than about 1% of cases. And any good policy is made for the majority, not for the minority. We make policy for the majority and then we deal with the minority cases around the outside. But it's the argument from extreme where people will paint the most shocking possible situation in order to make a visceral emotional reaction and then go, yeah, but what about that? Can we answer that? And usually from a logical perspective, well, what percentage of people do you think that happens to? And A, it's really horrible. Yes. That is one of the worst things that could ever happen to a person. What percentage of people do you think that would happen to? How prevalent is that? Um, the other one, particularly around abortion, is, well, it should be a basic human right to plan when I have a family. And I think, yes, it is. At what point, though? Okay, I'm going to make an ex a really blunt statement here. You ready? 
you don't want to get pregnant, don't have unprotected sex. Really simple. And look, let, let's, and if you really want to take it there, don't have sex outside of covenant. Because that's what it was designed for. And in fact, if we hadn't have departed from that as the basis, we wouldn't have the problem of AIDS, most likely. We wouldn't, have this, we wouldn't even have the question around abortion. So somewhere we lost that battle a long time ago, and we are where we are because we lost the battle around sexual responsibility. So let's say, I just said, I really like guns, and I just love to shoot guns, and I love to point it at people. And then someone gets killed on the, or, or something happens on the other side and go, oh, well, that's not my fault, but I just really love to do that. And that's not my fault. It's the same kind of logic that's being used there of, I just like to do this. Oh, my goodness, they got pregnant. What are we going to do now? See, if we hadn't have lost that debate, we wouldn't be having this one. Do we making sense? Okay. Now. And then, so that's the, I have the right to plan when I have a family. It's a basic human right. Yes, it is, but when? We need to get back to some kind of sexual responsibility. And that's the conversation we need to have. At what point does personal responsibility come into play here? It's a question that any intelligent person kind of goes, hmm, okay. And then if all of that fails, you get the, well, it doesn't affect you anyway if someone does that, so shut up. Had that one chucked at me this week, actually. <laughs> well, how does it affect you? Well, laws actually affect all of us. Laws affect the kind of society that we grow up in, that my kids grow up in. And if someone was to make a law that homeless, a homeless person who does not know another soul on the earth, who is mentally ill and drug addicted, could have their skull split open and be stabbed with a pair of scissors and terminated, I would argue against that too. Because that's still a life. So... The reason, I went, the reason I went there was to, around all of that was to show us that every, um, every issue usually gets crafted by the education and the media mountains as a small number of arguments. And when you start to see the small number of arguments, it becomes a whole lot easier to have the conversation because often we don't want to have the conversation because it's intimidating because we kind of go, well, I don't know enough. I can't answer a whole lot of these things. But as soon as you start to see the structure of the argument goes to, oh, you're trying that one now. All of a sudden, we can have a discussion. And this can happen influencing one, whether we're talking on the phone, chatting on Facebook, or whether we're trying to influence government policy. Now, I want to suggest, too, that with all of this, these kind of debates we must have in a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of judgment. That's really, really critical, because... When you are getting judgment thrown at you by another person, are they influential in your world or do you resist them? Yes. We resist them. Yeah. So when we talked about Ecclesia a couple of months ago, we talked about that adopting our city kind of heart. This is the kind of heart that we need to debate with. It's a heart of love. And also, one of the things we need to get good at is being part of the answer. So if the church broadly had this incredible ministry that says, if you don't want your baby, we will have it. We will take care of it. We will raise it. We will love it. We will give it a home. Do you think we might have more authority to speak on this issue? For example, this is where compassion and mercy ministry becomes absolutely crucial and absolutely critical. I could talk a lot longer on that one, but 
you cannot bear it right now. But all I'm trying to do here is just sow a seed because we've got, you know, good 20, 30 years ahead of us yet, if not more, of influencing. And I've loved the fact that, and I've seen a number of you make submissions and sign petitions, and I'm actually loving seeing us all engaged in a really important issue in our state. I think that's awesome. I want to encourage that because for too long, we've settled for the it doesn't affect you, shut up argument, and we've just stayed quiet. Now, I want to jump to Matthew 13 quickly to to bring this into land. Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. And this is the parable of the weeds, or depending on which version, the parable of the tares. It's the the wheat and the tares. So Jesus told them another parable, verse 24 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where, Where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Until uh, At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect all the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay, wheat, weeds, growing together. Why am I reading that in the context of this? I want to suggest that right now we are in a time of harvest where those seeds have reached full maturity. And now we're able to see stuff really clearly, really overtly. Whereas before, it's like, "Ah, I'm not sure that looks right in that field. And the father said, no, let them grow to full maturity. And then you'll be able to see the difference. And then when you pull out this one, you're not going to pull out that as well. And right now, I believe we're in a season where these seeds that have been sown over a long time have actually reached maturity, which is why everything is so polarizing right now. So A, we need to be prepared for that, knowing that the promise is that, uh, where is it? Collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned. Okay, they're going to be dealt with. There is a destiny for the weeds, for the tares. That is way better than for the wheat in that illustration. But we need to be prepared because the battle gets hot in that when you have seeds at full maturity. Does that make sense? Okay. The other, the other reason for reading that is one of the things we need, again, back to that sustained pattern of teaching, is we need the patience that the rest of the world seems to have when they have an agenda to start sowing seeds, knowing that they might not actually come to harvest for 30 or 40 years, but to have a multi-generational approach to discipling and shaping culture that goes way beyond, I come to church on a Sunday and I attend a home group, that says, we have been given a responsibility to shape culture, and when this stuff goes down on our watch, that's our responsibility. And that I, as a dad, have a responsibility to set up my kids and that generation for something way different. We get in the idea? So this is not one of those come down the front, let's deal with stuff kind of now messages. This is one of those, I want to talk into our next 20, 30, 40 years. And I want to sow seeds of the kind of stuff that we need to be equipped for if we really are going to show the world what love is. Now, if the idea of doing this gives you thoughts like, man, I don't even have enough energy to do what I'm doing now. I feel overwhelmed. I feel intimidated. I feel... That's what the heart journey's for. 
That's one of the reasons why we do the heart journey because we deal with the stuff in here that is warring against us being who we're meant to be in the world. See, the enemy would love us stuck in our own stuff of life, not paying attention, asleep at the wheel. Meanwhile, he's got people out there sowing weeds everywhere. He would love that. All this stuff on the heart journey. A, if it was just for the sake of your healing and your wholeness and your happiness, that's reason enough and we would do it. Okay? Because Jesus came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's reason enough. But I want to suggest there's a bigger game. And the bigger game is we were given a commission to disciple nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the what. Teaching them this sustained pattern of teaching, understanding we need to send people into the education mountain. We need people with PhDs who can then research, study, release that into the media mountain, start to infiltrate, if you like, in the best possible way, people's minds that then starts to influence government policy and all of a sudden you have, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. You have a city on a hill that Jesus talked about. Are we making sense? So, if all of this seems daunting, that's what the heart journey is for. Let's get ourselves cleared out, cleaned out, spiritual drainage, you know, all of the stuff. Let's get the, the stuff unclogged in here. And we all have it, we all need it. So that. But not just so that we can disciple the world. It has to happen in parallel. I can't afford to wait until I'm fully and completely healed before I do stuff because I'll never do it ever because <laughs> this has to run concurrently. But us doing the journey of the heart empowers this all the more because healed people heal people. Let's stand. Like I said, this isn't one of those short-term, let's fix stuff, let's pray this thing off, let's break that and whatever. This is a much longer term. Now, I said, before I pray quickly, I said last week, um, we have to approach all of these, in a, and I said this week, sorry, in a spirit of adoption, and judgment can have no place. So when we're talking about tough issues like abortion, People have been involved in that stuff. People know family members that have been involved in that stuff. And we cannot bring shame, judgment or anything there at all because our job is to break that stuff off people. So I want to be absolutely crystal clear about that. The judgment has no place. And we also need to be agents of healing to people who are traumatized from being through those experiences. Without judgment, only love hope that I'm clear on that. Jesus said, be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. In other words, spirit of love, spirit of adoption, razor sharp smart, all at the same time. Lance, Lance Walmo calls it killer sheep. <laughs> so Jesus, we give you permission to mold us to transform us, to heal us. That we might be healed people that heal nations. God, where our thinking has been too small, we give you permission to expand our paradigms. 
We give you permission to um, enlarge our vision, enlarge our perspective. God, we pray for our state right now. And while there's so much lobbying and bargaining and all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes, God, we ask for your spirit all over that whole process. God, for the upper house who will be debating that. God, we ask for your spirit to be upon that debate that that you would give smart kingdom people, whether they know they are or not, the right words, the right arguments that will cut through the nonsense, that will cut through the lies and the deception. And that this would come down in the favor of life, in the protection of life, the sustaining of life. And God, we, just, we give you permission to work in us so that we can be part of the answer, that we wouldn't just be people shouting from protests and saying no to everything, but we would be part of the answer, that we would be the healers, we would be the adopters.